Good afternoon, Crossroads. My name is Logan. I pastor a sister church here in Brooklyn. Grateful to be back uh, today to bring God's word. Uh, We are going to start today a new series of sermons on the topic of shame. And I know that is not a light subject. I know it's not a fun subject. And I know that it's not an easy subject. But It is an important one because shame has this habit of infiltrating all of the areas of our lives that give us meaning and purpose. Shame attempts to sabotage our relationships. You're, you're, about, you're getting into a new relationship, and okay, you're going deeper, and you're making friends, and like, this is good, you know, I'm being known, and I'm knowing somebody else, and shame whispers. They don't really like you. You don't really belong. Or we are, that always happens to me. Or we're in a moment where we're wrestling with what's important about who we are. And we're trying to figure out what God has called us to do. And we're trying to live as sons and daughters of the living God. And shame whispers, you don't really matter. Or we're trying to step in to what God has called us to do. We're trying to use our gifts. We're trying to take a risk. We're trying to move forward in our vocation. And shame whispers to us, you don't have what it takes. You see, shame is operating in the space where we are wrestling with who we are at the core of our very being. Shame, as we see it in the scriptures, is this deep sense that you are not acceptable or that you don't belong. Now, this could come from something you did, or it could come from something that's been done to you. It's a feeling of being exposed and humiliated. Many of you have probably heard of Brene Brown. She got famous because she did a TED Talk on shame. She's an author. She's a researcher at the University of Houston. Here is how she defines shame. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've... some. excuse me, and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. But here's what's amazing. When we look at the scriptures, though in our lives we experience a lot of shame, when we look to the scripture, there is an answer. In fact, did you know that the scriptures talk about shame 10 times more than it talks about guilt? Uh, The scriptures were written in an Eastern context, more of a shame-honor-based context. So we see a lot about shame. In fact, shame enters the story of scripture on the very first page, which is where we are going to pick up today. If we're going to understand the story of shame, we're going to understand what it is and how it affects us, and God has provided freedom and healing for it we got to start at the very beginning of the story. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in chapter 2 of Genesis, chapter, uh, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right, let's hit pause for a moment. 
This is actually a very significant verse. Um, I've left out a lot of context, like the whole creation. <laughs> um, God creates the world. He creates man and woman. He makes man and woman in his image with a purpose. And it's interesting, the author points out to us that they were naked and unashamed. There's lots of other things he could have said. They were naked and happy, naked and having a great time, naked and peaceful. But no, the author knows what's coming. And he says, can you imagine a moment in history where there was true vulnerability and true acceptance? Can you imagine a world where these two people were known fully by each other and by God and loved fully, naked, and there was no shame. And the author of Genesis is like the very beginning wanting to stare us in the face and say, hey, toxic shame was not part of God's good design. It's not what he wants for us. Chapter three, verse one. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now I just want to pause one more time. And can you imagine this scene? Adam and Eve lived with such intimacy and nearness with God that they heard his footsteps. That type of nearness, that type of relationship they had with God in Eden, but something has gone terribly wrong. Now they're covering themselves and now they're hiding. Verse nine, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So we not only 
see in this passage what shame is, but we see the devastating effects of shame in our lives. So we see first and foremost that shame is an attack on God's created order, that God made us in his image, in his likeness, that he gave us a good purpose, that we are to be sub-creators, we are to bring beauty and goodness into the world through our work, that we were made to live in relationships with one another and with God. This was God's intent, and when shame comes into our story, it comes to disrupt all the good that God has designed. But we also see um, the effects of shame. And one of the first points we need to notice is that Adam and Eve's eyes were opened. And when their eyes were opened, they did not like what they saw. In fact, what shame does in our lives is it turns us inward. We were created to reflect God to the world, made in his image to reflect him to those around us. But what shame has done is it turned us inward, as St. Augustine explained it. Our hearts have been curved in on themselves. During the course of a normal day, I rarely look into a mirror. You might say, oh, I can tell. Um, uh, I just don't. I mean, I brush my hair, brush my teeth, and that's about it. Unless I go to the gym. And when you go to the gym, like, there are mirrors everywhere, and you can't help constantly looking at yourself. It's like the narcissist playground, right? You're like, hey, look at me, and look at me, and look at me, and look at me. Right, and so you might be doing bicep curls and you're looking, you're like trying to avoid yourself and then you're like, then you're checking yourself out in the mirror five minutes later, right? You see the guy in the bench press and he should be paying attention to the bench press, but he's kind of glancing at himself in the mirror. It's like, it's impossible not to look at yourself in the gym. In one sense, that's what sin has done to our human hearts, right? We were, we were created to look outward, at our brothers and sisters, created to look at God, created to look at this purpose and mission that God has given to us. But when shame came into the story, our hearts were bent in on themselves and we moved from the freedom of self-forgetfulness to the bondage of self-interest. And I'm not talking about self-awareness. Self-awareness is a good thing. When we're talking about knowing ourselves and understanding how people experience us, that's good. But what we see uh, in Genesis is not just self-awareness, but a fixation on self-interest. Shame enters Adam and Eve's story, and they do three things. And these three things are the same things that we do when we are living in shame. We cover, we hide, and we judge. And these are devastating to, the, to becoming the person God has created us to be and living out the calling that God has given to us. So first, let's talk about the first effect of shame is covering we desperately tried to cover up. Verse seven, then the eyes of both were opened. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Look at the progression. Their eyes were opened. They always were naked, but now they felt naked. They 
at one point were vulnerable, but they were also safe. They were accepted. They were secure with one another and with God. But now they felt exposed. And their very first impulse is to grab something to cover themselves up. And of course, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Like, what if you suddenly woke up and you were out somewhere and you realized you were naked? I don't think I've ever said naked so much in a sermon. I'm sorry. It's just, um, but what, what if that were to happen? Like, you would, of course, be rushing to cover. I had a friend in college um, who was, had a serious sleepwalking problem, and I didn't believe him until I looked it up and realized that it's a real thing. But he would walk out of his dorm room in the middle of the night in his underwear, and he would wake up and he'd be on campus, bruised and cut up because he's running into things, and he would just wake up and suddenly have to run for cover. That's essentially what Adam and Eve do in the book of Genesis. It's like they wake up, their eyes are open, they're exposed, they're feeling shame, and they seek cover. And this is also our impulse when we are experiencing shame. We all learn to be expert fig leaf designers. In my shame, I feel worthless. So we think, okay, what can give me meaning and worth again? How can I prove that I really do matter? Maybe for you, it was excelling in sports when you were little, making good grades, having the right appearance. Then you got a little older and you said, oh, well, maybe now I can cover my shame with relationships. Oh, at least that person accepts me. Or money, career success and achievements. And deep down, we know that these fig leaves will not work. That they cannot cover our shame. And they fail us. So we move from thing to thing to thing, trying to cover our shame. I mean, how often have you heard this story? There was somebody in high school, and they used sports to cover their shame. They achieved on the field, and everyone applauded them. Well done. You're doing great. You matter because you are doing it out there on the field. And then they blow their knee out. And they say, well, that dream is over. That fig leaf is gone. Um, academic success. I am just going to crush it in the classroom. I'm going to get straight A's. I'm going to get the scholarship. I'm going to get into that grad school. And then that falls by the wayside, and they throw off that um, leaf. And then they get into the, their career, and they say, okay, the career is going to help me cover my shame, so I need this salary. I need to reach this level. I need this type of respect. I need this type of power because I have to cover my shame. And then all over and over and over again, we move from thing to thing to thing, realizing that the fig leaves do not work. And eventually, this person, they moved from sports to academics, and then they moved into their career, and then maybe they became a Christian. And they said, huh, this seems like a pretty good spot to cover my shame. I'll be the best at reading my Bible. I will be the most faithful in prayer. I'm going to be at the church every time there's a serving opportunity, and that looks like a pretty good fig leaf until it isn't. I was reminded this week of Andre Agassi's story. If you guys remember Andre Agassi, he's one of the greatest tennis players that ever lived, reached the height of hit the game. But he also, in his autobiography, talked about having a meth addiction, 
that he moved from tennis to this addiction. And this is what he wrote. He said, I hate tennis more than ever, but I hate myself more. See, this is the voice of shame. This is what happens when our fig leaves fail to cover us. We not only move from one thing, tennis, to something else, addiction, but when those things don't work, we despise them and we only end up despising ourselves even more. So the question this afternoon for us first is how are we trying to cover our shame? What are the fig leaves that we've grabbed and said, hey, maybe this will work? What are you doing to try to prove your value and your worth? Second, the second effect of shame is hiding. Look with me at verse nine. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Here's what happened. Adam and Eve hear God coming and they hide. The vulnerability they once had is gone. Now they do not want to be seen. They do not want to be known. They cannot bear the shame of it. And what we see is this destructive cycle of shame. Adam hid because he was afraid because he was naked. He hid because he was afraid, because he was naked. And that's what all of us do in our shame. We hide because we're scared of what may come from being vulnerable. If we were to give a visual of shame, a person living in shame, what did they look like? Heads down, shoulders are slumped, eyes on the ground, face downcast. I don't deserve to be Noticed, no one cares about me. I'm not even worth noticing. We just want to slump back out of sight. We don't want anyone to really know us. We don't want anyone to really see us. And so we present to the world this curated version of ourselves. Here is what you are allowed to see. Here is me as I'm presenting myself to you, you can go this far and no farther. And of course, we have social media, which makes this all the worse. We, pl- we hide in plain sight. People see more of you than they ever have, but they only see that part that you're willing to share. In the Harry Potter books, Harry has an invisibility cloak. Do you guys remember? Um, And basically the invisibility cloak, he puts it on, he becomes invisible, and it helps him to go on adventures. It helps him to take risk. Um, Shame is like the anti-invisibility cloak. We throw it on, and it prevents us from taking risk. We throw it on, it prevents us from stepping in to God's call. We put it on, it prevents us from stepping out. It says, eh, I don't think you should do that. You might get hurt, you won't be accepted, you don't have what it takes. So maybe you just stay hidden. Maybe you don't pursue that dream. Maybe you don't take a step out in faith to pursue that calling. And I think when I talk about hiding and talk about secrets, I think our minds uh, first go to the most obvious ones, right? We think of pornography or we think of an affair or we think of an addiction. And of course, those can be very shame-inducing, but it's deeper than that. 
Hiding also says things like this. I'm not smart enough. I live in fear of being found out. I'm not talented enough, and I struggle to take chances because I think I'm going to fail. I'm not likable enough. I'd rather not take a risk in this relationship and get hurt again. These are all forms of hiding, and hiding leads to isolation. Hiding leads to not really being known. And when we're not known, how can we be loved? In Alcoholics Anonymous, they say it this way. We're only as sick as our secrets. So where are we hiding? What good calling are you avoiding because shame has told you to hide? To be free, we have to come out of hiding. Third, the third effect of shame in our lives is judgment. Look look at verses 11 through 13. I won't read them, but here's a, a summary of what happens. God asks a simple question of Adam and Eve. Hey, did you eat of the tree? Yes or no? Um, but how do they answer? It's, it's something like this. Like that. The Spider-Man meme is what I was going for. Do we have that picture? Cool. Yes. Hey, did you eat of the tree? And both like... <laughs> they start blaming. They start judging. They start finger pointing. Adam blames Eve and God in the same sentence. The woman who you gave me. So God, it's her fault and it's kind of your fault. And then Eve blames the serpent. Everyone is blaming someone else. And this has been the story of shame ever since. Our shame often leads to judgment The act of judging others often has its origin in self-judgment. We're critical of ourselves, which leads us to be critical of others. Or put more simply, shamed people tend to shame people. They They tend to have a spirit of condemnation or condescension and critique of others. There's a Christian psychiatrist by the name of Kurt Thompson and he says this. He says, shame is one, or excuse me, judgment is one of the hallmark features of shame. He says, long before we're criticizing others, the source of that criticism has been planted, fertilized, and grown in our lives, directed at ourselves, and often in ways we are mostly unaware of. Suffice to say that our judgment, that tendency to tell ourselves that we are not enough, is the nidus out of which grows our judgment of others not least being our judgment of God. In our scripture today, Adam and Eve blamed others for their own sin. But there's actually one more way that shame causes us to misjudge. This is a really painful one. Often we can blame ourselves for what others have done. So we can also carry shame that does not belong to us. Someone else sinned and you are carrying the shame. It's this false narrative that we can believe sometimes. We say bad things happen to bad people. Something bad has happened to me. Therefore, this must be my fault. And we don't have time today to deconstruct all of that, but suffice it to say, that's the opposite of the biblical message. 
Think about Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, sinless, perfection in flesh. Had a really bad thing happen to him when he died unjustly on a Roman cross. A bad thing happening to a perfect person. On top of that, the whole message of Christianity is a message of grace, which means we actually don't get what we deserve. It's not based on what we've done or what we have not done or what has been done to us. Grace is God's gift to us that's free, despite our performance. But shame can cause us to misjudge. Judge falsely others or even ourselves. And I know this is really bad news. Everything I've been sharing is really heavy and really difficult. And it's been really hard for me not to jump ahead to the end of the story. Because the end of the story actually is not our shame. And its effects. We see God's gracious pursuit of us. Even in the first page of the Bible. Because we talk about vulnerability. And we say, how can I be vulnerable? How can I come out of hiding? How can I not cover my shame with achievement? How? Verse nine. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? This is God's first words to Adam and Eve after they sinned. Where are you? And this is a very interesting question. Stay with me for a moment. God is not geographically challenged. He knows all things. He knows where they are physically. You know, I I, I read that. Where are you? I think of me playing hide and seek with my kids when they were little. And I'd count to 10 and I'd run into my room and they'd be sitting crisscross applesauce on my bed with a cover. I'm like, where are you? Hey, buddy, where you at? Here I come. That's not what God is doing. He's not asking for their address. He's saying something much more profound, so much more beautiful. He's saying, I'm coming for you. He's pursuing them. He's coming after them even after they've sinned, even after they've been covered in shame. In one sense, where are you? is the question that the whole Bible is trying to answer. Where are you? I am coming for you. I am not content for you to sit on the side in shame, hiding, judgmental. I'm coming for you. Yes, he kicks them out of Eden in judgment for their sin. But in their judgment... God gives grace. In their hiding, God finds them. In their vulnerability, God covers them. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Wow, that is a beautiful verse. Only God can cover our shame, our achievements, our success, our money, our power, our relationships. Never can. They're fig leaves that just don't fit, but God can. And he does. He takes an animal, he kills the animal, and he makes clothes for them. God does for them what they could not do for themselves. 
He covers their shame with a sacrifice that he makes. And of course, the alarm bell should be going off. We're like, wait a minute. That's just a picture of what's to come later in the story. When the Son of God, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is going to step onto planet Earth, the world filled with shame. He's going to live a sinless life in perfect love to God and others, and he's going to give his life on, the, on a Roman cross. And in doing so, he's going to make the sacrifice that's going to cover our shame. He is going to clothe us, as the New Testament will say, in his righteousness. He's going to clothe us in his perfection. He's going to clothe us in his beauty. Shame entered the story in the Garden of Eden. Shame is covered in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Eden, Adam ate of the tree of life, which led to shame. On the cross, Jesus took of the tree of death, and he covered our shame once and for all. And here's what's amazing. Because he covers us, we are safe with him. We are secure in the world. We don't need to hide. We have acceptance from the God of the universe. The only opinion that ultimately matters at the end of the day declares over you, this is my son, this is my daughter with whom I am well pleased. And we see this all throughout the Bible when we start to see how God covers our shame. It's everywhere. What's the story of the prodigal son about? God covering our shame. The son returns to his father. His head is down. His shoulders are slumped. He's telling himself the speech that I am not worthy to be a son. I am a failure. What does the father do? He runs to the son. He doesn't just forgive him. He doesn't just welcome him home. He covers him. He puts the ring on his finger, the robe on his back. He covers his son's shame. Or think about King David. Lived a great deal of his life in a lot of shame. Remember at the end when Absalom, his son, uh, uh, basically leads a coup against him. Can you imagine your own son betraying you to that degree in the shame that came from that publicly? Reflecting on that in Psalm 3, he says this, You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Oh, can you see what he's saying? This is the antidote of shame. God is a shield around me. He's my covering. I'm safe with him. He's my refuge. He's my glory. He's the one that brings me meaning and significance. He's the lifter of my head. When I'm unable to lift my head because of my shame, when despite the best efforts of my friends and family to send text messages to call me to lift my head, they can't do it. God is the lifter of my head. And he lifts it up so we can see him, so we can see others, so that we can live out our calling. And this afternoon, this is true for us. He's calling us out of our hiding into the safety of his presence. He's calling us to drop the fig leaves and to be clothed in his righteousness and beauty. 
He's calling us to drop our critical, judgmental spirit and receive his pursuing grace. And this invitation is for you. Lest we forget what the cross of Jesus was all about. Crucified, naked. Shame. Crucified in public between two thieves. Shame. The cross was just as much a a device for torture, for shame, as it was torture. They wanted to humiliate you. And the whole time, Jesus was taking not his own, but our shame. He took our shame, and now he provides a covering for us. So when we step out in the world, we don't have to believe the lies and the whispers of the enemy that say, you'll never amount to anything. You have no future. You don't have what it takes. You don't belong. Just hide. Now he's calling us out into freedom and healing. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful. You don't leave us in our shame. You came for us. Where are you? You said to Adam and Eve, and you're asking the same question this afternoon. Where are you? I'm coming for you. Pursuing you with my love and my grace, I pursued you all the way to the cross where I despised the shame, carried the shame on your behalf so that you can live free and come out of hiding. Father, we pray that your spirit would would this afternoon bring that to life in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.